Welcome to IT Conversations, a series of interviews with experts in today's hot topics in information technology. I'm your host, Doug Kay, and my guest today is Bruce Schneier, founder and CTO of Counterpane Internet Security and an internationally renowned security expert and author. Described by The Economist as a security guru, Bruce is well known as a security critic and commentator, an opinion I'm sure you'll agree with shortly. His first best-selling book, Applied Cryptography, explained how the arcane science of secret codes actually works and was described by Wired as the book the National Security Agency wanted never to be published. His book on computer and network security called Secrets and Lies was called by Fortune a jewel box of little surprises you can actually use. But with his latest book, Beyond Fear, Thinking Sensibly About Security in an Uncertain World, Bruce has crossed over into the mainstream of personal, corporate, and national security. Hello, Bruce. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I want to get into the issues of the latest book, but many of our listeners know you as a crypto and network security guy, and they've submitted dozens of questions they'd like me to ask you. I'd like to just ask you two of these before we get into the the new book. Paul Bissex in Massachusetts asked, what do you think is the role of cryptography and authentication in fighting spam and viruses? In particular, he asked, what do you think about recent developments such as SPF, Yahoo's domain keys, and Microsoft's proposal for a CPU-intensive puzzle-solving algorithm as a possible solution for spam? You know, spam's a tough problem, and it's really an economic problem. Authentication doesn't do any good because a lot of spam these days is being sent from stolen accounts. We already have blacklists that block spamming accounts, so spammers have learned they have to uh, hack into the computers of regular people and send spam from there. So an authentication system will only authenticate who the, the victim is, the victim who's been hacked. Uh, puzzles, I'm more optimistic for. I mean, that tries to attack the economic problem. Can we make it economically non-viable to send spam? But again, you've got the hacked computer problem. Right? If, I'm gonna, if I'm a spammer and I'm going to hack into 1,000, 10,000 computers and have them, them send the spam, you know, then the puzzles aren't going to do much good. It, it's, it's a tough issue. It's a tough issue because the economics are such that sending spam makes sense. Right? That's the unfortunate reality. Uh, if we st- all stopped buying, if we all ignored it, then it, it would go away. But you know, as amazing as it might seem to the listeners of this, there are people who respond to spam ads, and that makes it a valid marketing tool because the costs to spam are so low. Do you see any technological solution on the horizon uh, that, that might be an answer for those of us who don't want to respond? You know, I don't get much spam. I, I have a, use a service called Postini. I'm not affiliated with them in any way. I, I, I'm just a satisfied customer. And they're, they're really good at blocking spam. I get very little. You know, those are going to be the sorts of solutions. The spam blockers are getting better. Spam's getting better, but so are blockers. And there's, there's an arms race. And, and I think we're doing pretty well. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with the amount of spam I get, which is almost none. Uh, for people who don't use spam blockers, it's a problem. I don't think there's a solution to spam. I think there's a lot of things we can do and are doing. And it's never going to go away until the economics changes. You know, you don't get as much spam in physical mail because postage stamps are expensive. But as postage gets cheaper, you see more of it. We're seeing more... Uh, 
telephone spam, because the price of telephone calls has been dropping considerably over the past decade. And, and we're seeing the same thing in email. So I see it as an economic problem, not, not one that's going to go away with technology. Another listener in the UK asked, what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of biometrics as an authentication technology? That's obviously a broad question, but... Uh, no, it's a good question, and, and I like biometrics, biometrics as authentication. Uh, biometrics has got a lot of press, at least in the United States, after 9-11, as a, a counter-terrorist tool. You know, we, if we could just pick terrorists out of crowds at airports, we can catch them and, and stop their nefarious plans. That I, I'm, I'm very skeptical about. But for authentication, I'm really, I think biometrics is good. And, and it's important for, for listeners to understand the difference. Some systems use biometrics as an identification tool. Right? Can we scan the crowds and identify the bad guys? That tends not to work. Biometrics work very well as an authentication tool. Type your username into a computer, put your thumbprint down, and that authenticates you. They're very different applications. And biometrics, have a, have, I think, have a really good place as an authentication tool. Uh, I've seen biometric access controls for computers that work very well. I, and my company, Counterpane, we use biometric access controls for our, our secure operation centers, both hand geometry and... Uh, actually, we use hand geometry, we use a password, and then we use a physical token. So we're mixing up different authentication techniques. And I, I, I'm really in favor of that. It's something that's hard to lose. Right? Passwords are easy to forget, easy to write down. Physical tokens are easy to lose. Your thumbprints, you know, you don't lose it very often. Ten years ago, you wrote a book entitled Protect Your Macintosh. <laughs> You're probably the only reader, you know. Yeah, well, you know, that's part of my job. And your career seems to have taken you from cryptography to network security to, let's call it, big picture security now. What came before all of that? How did you get involved with crypto in the first place? You know, I mean, I've always believed that security is a mindset. And, and, and you're right. My career has been an endless series of generalizations because I think they're all, all a piece. They're very similar. Uh, I think people who are good at security look around the world as they wander through their day and see security systems and see ways to subvert them. In a sense, they're hackers of the truest sense. You know, how does the system work? How can I use it? How can I abuse it? Whether they're walking into a, a store and looking at the cameras, walking into a voting booth, or, or, or just wandering through the streets. I mean, they don't, mind, they don't act on these, uh, uh, on these ideas. They certainly never stop thinking about them. And, you know, I had done that since forever. And I've been also interested in mathematics, and, and I've been interested in cryptography I mean, since I was a kid. I spoke recently with Phil Zimmerman of PGP, and he had a similar background. He, re he even remembers a specific book he read as a key about secret codes and invisible writing with lemon juice and things like oh, that. Oh, sure, I read that same book. I mean, back when we were kids, there were only like three or four of those books. So, you know, after you'd read them, you were done. But yeah, a, a lot of those books, as a kid, sparked our imagination. One of the things I'd like to do sometime in my career is write a, write a kid's book uh, on cryptography and secret codes. Because I think that's important. I think you know, kids need to be excited about the possibilities of, of privacy and secrecy and codes. And, and you know, they're inherently interesting. On the other hand, I also spoke recently with Dan Gear, who was lamenting the fact that 
we're about to get to a point where security experts are people who are actually trained in security from day one. They get a degree in it and so forth. And they may not have some of the breadth of background that the early pioneers of security technology have. I don't know. I'm less pessimistic. I really do believe that security is a mindset and that people with the mindset will have the breath because you can't help it. And then they'll get training in their specific uh, area of expertise, but they will have the breath of experience, the breath of, the breath of analysis, the breath, so the, the breath of the way the world works. And I think there are security experts who are just trained, and they're not very good, and I, I meet a lot of them all the time. But you can tell when someone has a passion, when someone truly understands how security works. He might not know the math. Right? He might not know how the operating system works. He might not know about you know, locksmithing and how locks work or how voting machines work. But he sort of gets security. And those sorts of people, I think, we will have in our field forever. And that's what makes the field great, and that's what makes the field grow. So, you know, Dan's right. The majority of people will just be practitioners who have been trained and who don't have the passion. But that's probably true in every industry. You had a perfectly good reputation as a network security expert. You had grown counterpane into a well-respected business. Why did you decide to write Beyond Fear, a book that, that appears at least to go far beyond the scope of counterpane's typical business? Well, I really wrote Beyond Fear because we're living in the silly security season in our country. I mean, we're seeing so much nonsense after September 11th and so many people saying things about security, about terrorism, that just make no sense, that I wanted to contribute to the debate. I wanted to write a book that people can read and then understand security. I mean, they don't have to agree with the conclusions. One of the things I say in the book is that security is personal, that there often are no answers. But I wanted people to at least understand how to ask questions, how to look at a security system, how to evaluate it, because we're being asked to you know, take our shoes off at airports. We might be asked to uh, live with a national ID card. We've been asked to support invasions of foreign countries. We're being asked to support all sorts of domestic and foreign policy in the name of security. And I'd like people to ask, does this make sense? Should we do this? The book is filled with an amazing array of facts and examples. Are these examples that you've been collecting over the course of your career, or did you find most of them just as you decided to sit down and research and write this book? I mean, it's both. A lot of examples I've been collecting, you know, even when I was writing about computer security, if you read uh, Secrets and Lies, I tended to write in analogies. I tended to explain computer security using non-computer analogies because people got them better. So, you know, once you start working in analogies, you do wander around the world and you see security everywhere. So I like using those examples. So when I started writing the book, I, I use those examples. And one of the things I do when I write books is I send drafts to people. You know, hundreds of people read drafts of my book in various stages. So they started suggesting examples. And then I would research them. So the process fed on itself. And the good ones would stay, the bad ones would go away. Right? I'd have better examples. So I have this treasure trove of, of security examples that, that, uh, that illustrate different points. I'm going to read some of my favorites of those examples. Oh, excellent. And as a way to uh, just get you to respond and uh, sort of flesh them out and explain what they mean. First one that sounds at least something like the geeks in the audience might understand, and that's 
Complex systems have even more security problems when they are non-sequential and tightly coupled. What do you mean by that? That's a, that's a, uh, a phrase coming out of systems theory. And, and it, it's fascinating. Uh, the book I'd recommend people read is called Normal Accidents by a professor named Charles Perrow. And he talks about failures, not security failures. He talks mostly about accidents. But what he points out is that systems tend to fail catastrophically when they have these characteristics. So a simple system would be uh, like a row of dominoes. You push one down, and they all fall. Right? That's sequential. It fails you know, predictably. A, a non-sequential system is where there are feedback loops, and, and, and a small failure can get bigger. I mean, you, you think of a nuclear power plant where a little failure here, or actually even better is uh, the blackout from last August on the East Coast. Right? It was a small failure at one power station in Michigan that dropped uh, you know, a lot of the Northeast because the system was, was nonlinear because one cause could have many effects, which could feed back on the cause, which could have even more effects. And, and tight coupling is, 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 is similar, but tight coupling means that stuff happens very, very fast. So if something is loosely coupled, uh, think of uh, you know, the, the air, airlines is a great, is a great example. You know, it, there's nonlinear going on, but it's loosely coupled. So a delay in... Seattle might cause a delay in Chicago, which might cause a delay on the East Coast, but it doesn't cause planes to crash into each other. Because, the, because there's sort of loose coupling, you can mitigate the problems. Now, you've been on the ground when you've been told, you know, there is a hold in oh, Chicago O'Hare and we're not going to take off yet. Right? If the system was tightly coupled, you couldn't do those mitigating things. You'd run out of fuel airborne. Right, which is what used to happen. You used to use a circle a lot more, but the system got more loosely coupled. And when I look at security failures, these are the sorts of things I look at in systems. That systems that are nonlinear and tightly coupled will tend to fail worse. Right? They might not be more insecure at the front end, but an attacker could do more damage by attacking it because of these characteristics. Right? Blowing up a power station you know, might plunge you know, 10,000 people into darkness. But in a tightly coupled nonlinear system, you can get tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, in a blackout. I mean, that's the difference. Sticking with this theme about the manner in which systems fail, uh, a couple of short quotes here. You, you said, in, in reference to 9-11 and some other situations, that the systems didn't fail in the way the designers expected. And along with that, the concept that Attackers exploit the rarity of failures. There are two related concepts. They, they are. And when you think about failures, you always have to think about what you're not thinking about in that paradoxical way. Uh, one of the things is rarity. If a system almost never fails, then when it does fail, no one will believe it. I mean, we've all had the example of calling up a bank or utility company complaining about a bill and being told the computer never makes mistakes. Right? Well, the computer does make mistakes. It just makes them rare enough that no one knows what to do when the mistakes happen. The, the, the power failure in August was an example of that. There were computer failures that happened that the people in the control room didn't notice because they are so rare. And an attacker can exploit that because people aren't ready for it. 
Right, you know, one of the unfortunate horrors of uh, of September 11th is that many people didn't know to evacuate the building because no one believed they would collapse. Now, that might be a perfectly reasonable belief. I don't know enough about structural uh, engineering to, to say one way or another. But the fact that nobody believed that meant the death toll was that much higher. And if you know, if the building failed every week, everyone would know you get out of the building. But it never happened before. So people didn't know. Now, a recurring, recurring concept in your book is probably typified by this example. A terrorist who wants to create havoc will not be deterred by airline security. He'll simply switch to another attack and bomb a shopping mall. This is, I think, real important. I, I just did a, a hearing uh, two days ago uh, on Capitol Hill about CAPS-2, about airline profiling. And one of the things that I'm always struck with is how good we are at defending against what the terrorists did last year. You were spending a lot of money shoring up our airlines. We're now talking about shoring up trains. And money that we spend that simply causes the bad guys to change their tactics is money wasted. Right? You have a red and a blue door, and the terrorists go through the red door, and you say, we must secure the red door. So they go through the blue door next time. I mean, what do you actually buy? And one of my fears is that right, we spend lots and lots of money securing the airlines, and the terrorists move to shopping malls or movie theaters or crowded restaurants or any of the things they do in Israel, that there are just so many targets that taking the target the terrorists happened to pick last year and securing it just sort of ignores the real problem. You also described what happened as a result of us building stronger and stronger bank vaults that were ultimately uh, more impervious to dynamite. Right, and, and that's, it's, it's actually a great example. Uh, as bank vaults became impervious to dynamite, the preferred tactic switched to kidnapping bank presidents who knew the combination. Not something we, not something we anticipated. No, and we saw this in, in, uh, in South Africa. As, uh, as cars had more and more anti-theft provisions that made them harder to steal, car thieves turned to carjacking a much more dangerous crime for, for the victim. I mean, and so you have, again, an example of security causing the attackers to change their tactics. And it might be a good thing, right, because the number of carjacking is going to be less than the number of car thefts. But it might not be. And we have to remember that there is a feedback loop between attacker and defender. That once an attacker doesn't attack and a defender modifies his defenses, the attacker will then modify his attack. And, and, and back and forth. Going back to the, uh, the bank fault analogy, after uh, uh, bank robbers started kidnapping bank presidents and bank tellers, uh, the, the vault companies invented time locks, right? a lock that the bank president couldn't open even if you put a gun to his head. And the point of those time locks was to save the lives of the bank executives and the bank executives' families. Because all the bank robbers knew that kidnapping the bank president or his wife or children won't help because it's a time lock. So again, now a defensive tactic evolves to respond to a, an attacker tactic, which evolves to respond to a defensive tactic. Now, this is another fundamental principle that I, I learned from this book, which is that, in a sense, that's a failing game. If we attempt to 
uh, anticipate every possible attack, we're, we're going to be virtually unsuccessful. And that, in fact, we're much better off by trying to ferret out the attacker and keep him from participating in virtually any attack. Yeah, I'm often asked uh, by the press, by, by, by legislators, what do you recommend? Because I, I spend a lot of time saying this won't work, that won't work, this won't work. And they always ask, you know, well, well what will work? What, do you, what should we do? And, and I think we need to spend money at, at the either end of the spectrum. The money we spend on intelligence, investigation, going after the terrorists, will work regardless of what their next plan is. Right? Defending the airlines only works if the next plan involves airlines. But going after the terrorists works regardless of what the next plan is. I think that's important. So I'm very much in favor of those sorts of things. Right? Hiring linguists at the FBI, getting investigative teams in place, tracking terrorist funding, interdicting communications. That stuff also works. And then I also advocate stuff at the back end, emergency response, first response, whether it's police, fire, medical. Spending money there helps us, again, regardless of what the terrorist plans are. We can never anticipate the terrorist plans. Right? In as much as we do, they will change them. So by definition, you can't anticipate them. Right? We can't all say, my God, they're going to attack the rail system. Let's secure the rail system. Because then they'll decide to attack something else. So what are some of the examples of the expenditures that the United States is now making that you think aren't, aren't well justified? You know, generally, all of the, the big budget IT systems, I think... Uh, CAPS-2, the airline profile, airline profiling system is a complete waste of money. I think fingerprinting foreigners at the border, if you actually sit down and think about it, makes absolutely zero sense. My complaints are largely for the big ticket items. Uh, TIA, Total Information Awareness, where we're going to get information in every American, try to pick terrorists out of the crowds. The face scanning in airports program. Now, this kind of stuff tends to be very, very expensive and, and doesn't produce useful results. In a recent Newsweek interview, you're quoted as saying that homeland security measures are an enormous waste of money. Now, is is that that category that you consider homeland security? Yeah, I mean that's that's the category. It's it's trying to secure the targets. There are just too many targets. If you sit down and count up all the places, a hundred or more people gather in close proximity, right? Restaurants, movie theaters, sporting events, schools, trains buses, crowded intersections, you, you, know, you rapidly realize that there are an enormous number of them in this country, and you can't possibly secure them. If you remember, I mean, the most amazing thing to me about the, the airline security measures in the months after 9-11 were the enormous lines. Right, so here we are trying to make our airport safe, yet we bunch people in these huge crowds before security. Making them essentially targets. Making them essentially targets. Now, now there wasn't anything. I mean, another thing we have to remember, which is very hard to remember in sort of our fear-laden society, is terrorism hardly ever happens. You know, very often I hear people from the administration saying, you know, our policies are working because in, in the two and a half years since 9-11, nothing else has happened. And I think about it and say, well, nothing happened in two and a half years before 9-11 either. And you didn't have any policies. What does that prove? What it proves is that terrorist attacks are very, very rare. 
and that we're spending a lot of money on something that hardly ever happens. Now, we can decide to do that. We as a nation uh, tend to worry about spectacular and rare events rather than common events, right? spouse abuse, uh, automobile crashes, right? things that kill lots and lots of people every year. And we tend to focus on spectacular and rare. But we should realize we're doing that. There's my favorite quote in the whole book, and I know you probably know which one it is. Actually, I don't. I can't wait. That more people are killed every year by pigs than by sharks. Yeah, that's which, that's... which shows just how good we are at evaluating risks. That was actually a fun quote. I actually went to... Uh, there's a government website which actually has death, stati- death statistics from various things. You can see how many people die from lightning, from heart disease, from, uh, you know, from anything. And, and the results are surprising. You know, people tend to worry about the wrong things. Right? We worry about what's in the news. I, I tell my friends that if it's in the newspaper, don't worry about it, because it means it hardly ever happens. Right? It's news. News hardly ever happens. That's why it's news. When something stops being in the newspaper, then worry about it. But there's a, now there's a huge emotional component to all this, and you address this somewhat in the book. Uh, you, you say, for example, uh, probably an important quote, that people make bad security trade-offs when they're scared. Right. And the emotional, uh, the emotional part really can't be belittled. It, it's important. I mean, as a security professional, I often poo-poo it. But that's wrong. I mean, I, and, I, and I sort of learn not to do it. That the reason we, we're spending money on, you know, on terrorism that killed nobody in the past two and a half years, and we're not spending money on you know, automobile crashes that have killed 40,000 people in, in you know, the past dozen or so years each, is because of, of an emotional reason. Right? We are emotionally scared. This emotionally worries us more. And, and that's important because security is a reality and a feeling. And I, I try to talk about this in the book. I mean, it's not, I'm not a psychologist. Right? It's, it's getting away from my area of expertise. But it's important not to belittle it, not to forget it. The example I like to think about is imagine that you're, uh, you know, you're living in the D.C. area during the weeks when the snipers were at large. Now, if you run the math, they doubled the murder rate in the counties they were operating during the weeks they were at large. Right? You would have been more at danger probably moving into the Washington, D.C. inner city than you would being where you were when the sniper was about. Yet the reaction was completely out of proportion. Right? School principals canceled out sore events. People were afraid to leave their homes. So you can imagine that you're living there, and your daughter is afraid to walk to school because of the sniper. And you can sit her down with graphs and charts and explain to her the mathematics and why she's, why she's safe. Or you can just walk her to school. But honestly, if walking her to school makes her feel better, it's the right thing to do even though it might not make sense from a security perspective. My hope is that through my writings and my speaking, people can be educated to get beyond their fears. But you can't belittle them. Now, you can take, you can take this pragmatism quite a long distance. And as you do that, I find that I start to question it myself. Here's an example that I got from uh, something you wrote in Wired magazine. I'll, I'll just paraphrase this. You wrote that 2,978 people in the U.S. died from the terrorism in 2001. But 3,454, that's more people, died from malnutrition in that same year. Now, obviously, we could have saved all of those who died of malnutrition for a whole lot less money than what we're spending to avoid a repeat of 9-11. But as a society, uh, we're about as far from acting that way as I could possibly imagine. 
how rationally should we be thinking? You know, I think I think the more rationally we think, the better we're going to spend our money. Right? I mean, I view myself as a consumer of security. How much am I getting versus what am I giving up? And when we, you know, it doesn't it doesn't work this way. When Congress are spending the hundred, two hundred billion dollars to invade Iraq, you can't say to them, "Well, let's not invade Iraq and let's cure malnutrition instead." Right? They won't do that. So it really doesn't work that way, but it should. You know, we are spending. $200 billion, you know, that's, that's a number I hear as the estimates are all said and done, to invade Iraq. Are we $200 billion safer because of it? Right? That's the real question to ask. Not was it a good idea, not how, how bad was Saddam Hussein, but was as security consumers, did we get our money's worth? And I want to look at malnutrition at automobile safety, at, at spouse abuse, the same way. You know, how many lives can I save? How many lives can I improve? How much can I better society for the money? Because in the end, I only have so much money, right? I am a consumer. I have to make buying decisions. Do I want to buy more nutritional food, or do I want to go out to the movies? Right? I, I have to make that choice. I only have one paycheck. And I'd like it if we, on the national scale, could think the same way. I don't think it's possible, but I'd like it if we could. Now, we all, we all make these personal decisions that you've described, but on a national scale, we're making much larger decisions, at least larger in terms of budgets. And the political system, to me, is a, uh, in very, very much an amplifier of that individual fear-based system. Yeah, I agree 100%. So... You know, there's a positive feedback loop there, unfortunately, where, where you know, we, we feel a small amount of fear, and that translates into a very large expenditure of money based upon the fears of individuals. Right. Is there a solution to that? Probably not. Unfortunately, I think that's just the way politics works. Because if you're a politician, you have to, you have to appear strong. You can't be weak on terrorism, even if it makes sense. How can we help our political leaders make strong but rational decisions? Uh, I write, I speak. That, that, that's what I do. I try to educate. You know, I spend a lot of time uh, on Capitol Hill talking to people. I spend a lot of time writing my book. I give copies out. I write op-ed pieces. So, I mean, that, that's what I try to do. I think education is, is, is the way to do it. it it's, not a, it's not a fast solution, and it might not work, but it's, I think, our only hope. Another quote, something that you wrote uh relative to this topic, was when the U.S. government says that security against terrorism is worth curtailing individual civil liberties, it, it's because the cost of that decision is not borne by those making it. Talk about that. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time on that in some of my writings. I've done op-ed pieces on that. Security is multifaceted. Right? There are many, many different threats in many areas. And right now we are focusing on the terrorist threat and ignoring other threats. And as a general rule, the people who make security decisions make security decisions that are rational to them. Right? Security is a trade-off, and they're going to make a personal trade-off. So when you see a lot of these government, these intrusive government systems, it's because the people making the decisions aren't the ones being intruded upon. They're the ones doing the intruding. So their trade-off is sort of inherently different than yours or I might be. But on the other hand, there's also the 
the inappropriate political influence. I love this quote, too. Did you ever wonder why tweezers were confiscated at security checkpoints, but matches and cigarette lighters, actual combustible materials were not? If the tweezers lobby had more power, I'm sure they would have been allowed on board as well. That's a great one. And, and, and it's true. I mean, the government wanted to ban laptops, but the airline said, no, you can't do that. Our business travels will leave us. Right? Security decisions, as a general rule, are subservient to, to other decisions. And, and I think that's as it should be. I don't think that's bad. Right? Security is rarely a driver. It, it, it is much more often subservient. So what's your impression so far of the 9-11 hearings that are being conducted in Washington? Uh, there's not a lot of news. I mean, most of the stuff that's being said was, was said on September 12th. Uh, you know, there's a lot of finger-pointing. Certainly there were failures of intelligence. There were failures of communication. I'm not convinced there were massive failures of, of, the, of intelligence. You know, this is one event. It's a singular event, and it's very hard to make generalizations from it. And sure, a bunch of things went wrong, but if they went right, other things would have gone wrong. Uh, I personally feel that 9-11 was, more than anything else, a very, very horrible uh, coincidence. That things just failed in exactly the right way. And there were many opportunities for things to go right. And if they did, we would have patted ourselves on the back and said it was a success, even though the exact same stuff was in place. It's important to realize that neither success nor failure necessarily shows a systemic problem. Because it's just a singular event. Well, Bruce, I want to thank you for being with me today, and I want to encourage everyone to go out, and if you haven't already, get a copy of Beyond Fear and read it. It really is one of the best books to come out in the last year or so. Bruce, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This was fun. And thanks to all of you for listening to IT Conversations. This edition was recorded on April 16th, 2004. My guest has been Bruce Schneier. You'll find him all over the web, but a good starting point is probably his weblog, which you can find at www.schneier.com. Actually, that's his homepage. My name is Doug Kay, and I hope you'll join me next time for another edition of IT Conversations. Mm-hmm.